Well, uh, it, it is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters. And uh, would you enter into just a, a mental exercise with me, if you're willing? Uh, imagine uh, you walk into a bookstore one day and you aimlessly wander into the back. You open a thick green novel. The spine has been worked, creased, set, and worn. Kind of like your old belt that has only seen the buckle placed in the fourth notch for 20 years. Well, the book, it falls open and seamlessly, naturally, it, it falls on page 135. You read this sentence in paragraph three. It was a cold night and the wind smacked hard against the thin glass of the window. First thunder, then the scream of a woman, the shadow of a man moving through the room. This night would change everything in the small community of Lakewood. Now, having only this one sentence in this make-believe book I just laid out, from paragraph three, can you make an educated guess as to what is happening on page 135 or the book of the whole? Well, maybe you think we're reading the narrative of a birth. Maybe you think there's been a murder in this scene. Our family played Clue last night for the first time. It was a disaster. Well, maybe you think reading this book that some chap just proposed to his lovely girlfriend and she screamed with delight as she put it on Instagram. What does that sentence mean? And this exercise is a reminder of the danger we find ourselves in when we come to the scriptures. Have you ever wondered why there can be so much variance on what the scriptures actually say? Often, not always, often, it comes down to how we take the words on a page and filter them through the context of the whole passage and the whole of the redemptive story found in the entire Bible. It's possible to dismiss the plain reading of the scripture and just say, ah, that first century cultural, nah, it doesn't mean what it says. And it's also possible to take words too literally and misapply them when they're ripped out of context. I'll give you a couple examples from the lips of Jesus. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Don't see any one-eyed pirates in here. Jesus says, you must hate your own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters. You must hate yourself to be my disciple. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. I don't know what you're doing with your feet, but cut it off, he says. Context and authorial intent require us to do the difficult work of understanding exactly how literally a word should be understood. It's no different with our passage today as we come to a well-known and weaponized verse by Christians and non-Christians alike who often take this out of context in an overly literal way. And of course, I'm talking about Matthew 7.1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. My main idea this morning is simply this. The Beatitudes, the Beatitudes shape our judgments. Now, I'm going to argue in my best, my very best Inigo Montoya impression from The Princess Bride. 
you, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Now, whether our word is judge or inconceivable, our task as a faithful follower of Christ is to know what Jesus says, what he means, and listen and obey. Well, would you please read with me Matthew 7, 1 through 6, and I believe we'll have it on the screen as well. God's word, uh, our Savior, says this. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Well, this is God's word. And uh, by way of something of kind of a quick survey at large, I want us to consider our first point, our needed judgments. Yes, you heard that right, our needed judgments. Now, what exactly is a judgment? Uh, What does the word mean? Uh, By definition, is it always condemning? The dictionary definition can be summarized as the following. Judgment is a process of forming an opinion or evaluation by discerning and comparing. So some synonyms, words that mean the same as judgment, are awareness, common sense. That's a new thing they have, by the way. Wisdom and reasoning. So you you see, when we make a judgment call in life, we are determining what we believe to be the truth of the matter, whether it's a fact or an opinion. We live in a world where we judge, we judge and we assess all the time. We may be judged as guilty of sin. We may be judged as someone who has good character. A couple may be judged as a good match. We judge things to be good or bad all the time. And the word judge in the scriptures, depending on your translation, it shows up roughly 150 times. And there's even a book in the Old Testament called Judges. Men and women who were placed in positions by God to communicate God's assessment and judgment on the people of Israel. Even God is constantly communicated as the one. The one who judges or assesses the hearts of mankind both now and eternally. Judgment in the scriptures is consistently this weighing of the balances. Are people in line with him or are they not? Yes, God clearly is the ultimate judge now and forever, the one who rightly discerns and evaluates hearts. But we too are called to discern and even judge our hearts and the world around us in light of, not our own opinion, but the scriptures, the word of God that brings assessment and clarity on our lives. 
Now, this is evident in John chapter 7. Maybe you've read this passage before. Jesus is in one of his back and forth kind of dialogues with the religious folk of his day. And there was a debate going on, a debate on the relationship between life, faith, and the Old Testament. And a judgment or an assessment was required. Jesus says this in John 7, 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. We are called to discern and make judgment calls. We are called to be critical thinkers. We are called to assess whether we are following God or not. So when we come to our passage in Matthew chapter 7 and we read verse 1, look again. Judge not that you be not judged. Do not judge. We have to understand it in light of the scriptures. We have to understand it in light of other places where Jesus says that we should judge. Especially we should understand it in light of our passages that we've been going through on the Sermon on the Mount. There is a needed judgment and discernment in our lives. So, what exactly is Jesus saying then in verse 1? Well, we get to look very carefully and get to the heart of the matter as we see not just our needed judgments, but let's just get right down to it. We consider our biased judgments in verses 2 through 4. And we must do the work of connecting verses 2 through 4 with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount in our previous messages. So remember, Jesus has gone up on a mountain. He's proclaiming the greatest sermon ever, a kingdom law and way for us to follow. So for those of us, uh, if you've been with us, uh, I'm not sure how the last few months have been for you. Uh, it's been a little difficult for me. I feel like I get my toes stepped on every Sunday as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. Because this Sermon on the Mount is a kingdom way that is so far beyond our capabilities. Jesus calls for the gospel and the fruit of the Beatitudes to be shaped in us. We're to live as salt and light, he says. We're to put away anger and lust. We're to cherish our marriages, tell the truth, stand against evil, and love and pray for people who do evil things. Jesus commands us to live for his reward and not others. We're to live in dependent prayer. Our treasures should be heavenly. We should hold this world loosely. We should seek first the kingdom of God and trust in his providential care. The Christian life. The Christian life is a high call to follow God. But I wonder, I wonder if you've experienced the same thing I have as we've gone through this Sermon on the Mount. As we've heard these commands of Christ, I wonder if you have been wrestling with the same thing I have. Is it possible that we can hear this great sermon from the lips of Jesus and seek to apply it and project upon the flaws, sins, and the blind spots of other people instead of ourselves. Jesus knows that he could speak with kingly authority as the better David from a mountain, and people will still get up from that mountain, and they will say, mm, mm. that's the charismatic in me. Mm. Mm, man, gee, that boy can preach fire. Oh, man, that was a great sermon, Jesus. What a good word. What a great service. <laughs> mm. You know who really needs to hear this, they might say? You know who really needs to hear this? <laughs> My spouse. 
Go through the Sermon on the Mount and you go, you know who really needs to hear this? My kids, my neighbor, my governor, my coworkers. You know who really needs to be changed by the Sermon on the Mount? Those people. As one writer put it, quote, Jesus does not forbid the evaluation of others. He forbids the condemnation of others. It is possible for those of us in this room to hear Jesus' words and be biased, to think more highly of ourselves, to fail to see that our greatest problem in life is not the world around us or those people, but our greatest problem is us. We're so quick to condemn others and neglect what is inside our own hearts. Jesus doesn't allow us to sit in our biased judgments, so he puts verses 2 through 4 on us. Jesus doesn't want us to leverage the Sermon on the Mount and teachings to condemn others. And let's admit it, we're all tempted to do that. Rather, he gives us a few things to chew on in our passage. As we'll see, we are tempted to judge and we're tempted to assess wrongly. So verse 2, this idea of the way you judge, the way you pronounce, well, that that same measure will be held over you, verse 2 says. So the way you assess, uh, you're going to get it back. Does your biased view of yourself apply the standards of judging and discerning? Do you do that inconsistently? This is a difficult question for us to wrestle with, I think. So do you find yourself frustrated by cancel culture, but you dismiss or put others down who disagree with you? Do you assess that those who pursue the LGBTQ lifestyle and yet you excuse your own sexual sin? Do you judge others for lying while you tell half-truths? Do you rightly discern the poor choice of words of others and yet you fail to recognize your own loose lips? Are you overly critical of a co-worker's quirky disposition, but you ignore your own difficult temperament? Verse 2 tells us that if we condemn others and yet we do the same thing, it might be manifested different, but we do the same thing, Well, we have no excuse. We will be judged and assessed too, both now in this life and eternally. Which is exactly where verse 3 and 4 come into play. Our biased judgments, assessments, and discernment in life, it is so quick and naturally skilled in pointing out the flaws of others. So whether it's following the Sermon on the Mount or upholding God's ways and laws as a whole, we are constant and consistent finger pointers. The example that Jesus gives in verse 3 and 4, actually, it's quite comical. Uh, Imagine taking this example literally. Imagine you see a speck of sawdust in someone's eye and, and you want to help take care of it. All the while, you yourself have a giant two by four across your own eyes. Well, what's the issue with having a log in your eyes? You can't see. You can't judge. You can't discern and assess and speak into things as clearly as you think. This example, having a big log or two by four in your eyes, it's kind of par excellence. That's what it means to be biased. 
This is the pinnacle of elevating self. This is such a clear picture of thinking we see something clearly, but we're hindered, blinded, and slowed by our own mess. So before you defend yourself here, before I defend myself, before we point to the necessary assessments and discernments we need to make in life, before you read past this verse and argue that we must stand for truth and we must stand for righteousness, will you allow verse 3 and 4 to weigh on your heart? Are we able to admit that while we might be right in bringing light and clarity to an aspect of someone's life, yes, yes, you may need to say something about that speck. You may need to say something about truth. But will we admit our own limitations and our own sins first? This fundamentally was the core issue of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Self-righteous attitudes and postures towards the world around them. A consuming posture of being the watchdog and policing all of society to a point where they elevated themselves constantly over other people. Well, shouldn't the people of God influence the world around them? Yes, of course, yes. Well, shouldn't the people of God speak truth into a dark world and point out specks and sins and evil? Yes, yes, of course. We should judge and assess, but we must first and foremost do it to our own hearts and lives. Brothers and sisters, have you done this work? Have you stopped, prayed, and assessed your own heart? By the Spirit of God, have you invited God's word and godly people around you to detect logs and two-by-fours? Faithful followers of Christ are reflective, and they commit to a contemplative consideration of their own sin. Not just occasionally, but consistently. Lord, what would you show me? Lord, if I see it wrongly, if I'm acting hypocritically, if I don't have the vision, I think, show me, lead me, change me. Uh, I, I read this morning, a blog from just a, a godly sister, a homemaker, who suggested these five steps to remove the log in your own eye. And I was, just, I was really challenged by them, and I found them helpful, and, and maybe they'll be helpful to you. Step number one, take time to ask the Lord to search your heart. When was the last time we applied Psalm 139, God, search me? Know me. Before I post, or I guess we don't do this, we do this. Before I post, before I shake my fist, before I condemn someone else, have I prayed, oh God, search me and know me. Before you post, before you open your lips, before you condemn, have you prayed that prayer? Step number two. Write on a sheet of paper in two columns, my sinful ways and what God wants me to do. You see, we don't simply make a mental assent to the idea of sin, but we confessionally believe that one of the key doctrines of the scripture is that you and I have missed the mark and we do so continually. 
So we don't take up more ambition, more energy in other people's sins. Oh, no, no, no. Our time, our effort, our consideration, and even our lists are about our sins first. Step number three, confess your specific sins to God and turn from them, repent. Step number four, seek forgiveness for those you have hurt and speak only of your failures as you do it. Husbands and wives, that might be helpful for us. Don't seek forgiveness. Oh, I'm so sorry that I treated you that way when it was really your fault. Step number five. Write any wrongs as you're able and pray that God would break sinful patterns. We have to admit this morning. We have to admit. Our judgments are biased. We're biased. But Jesus offers another way. Consider with me, not just our, our needed judgments, our biased judgments, but our recalibrated judgments in verses 5 and 6. We come to these verses and we see very clearly and quickly that Jesus tells us to judge. We are told to assess and discern. We are told that it is right that we would speak into our relationships and be salt and light in a dark world. It is right. So we find ourselves yet again in attention. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't condemn. Don't elevate yourself. Don't treat other people's problems as bigger than your own. Don't wrongly and blindly assess the situation without dealing with your own sin, your own blindness, that giant two by four that you have. Don't do those things. And at the same time, verse five, while you are to be gracious with others, we see that a judgment call is made. Both things are true at the same time. Verse 5, after we deal with our own heart and sight, we will see clearly to speak into the lives of others in the world around us. And make no mistake about it, we should do that. As I truly submit myself and fully submit myself to Christ's teaching, as he changes me, as he shows me my own blind spots, verses 2 through 4, I should lovingly and graciously speak when I see something. I should assess and offer a word of gospel truth to those around us. It's not wrong to point out the specks of others as long as we do it in the right way. So kids, you got a speck in your eye. You're not seeing clearly how God made you and how he might lead you. You're not seeing how honoring mom and dad is life-giving. Couples, you got a speck in your eye. The way you think or talk about your spouse or even respond to your kids, there's a better way. <laughs> Everyone in here, you got a speck in your eye. We leverage our lives for ourselves far too often and we sinfully seek our own kingdom. The world around us, they got a speck in their eye. A life is made in God's image, young and old, and it's eternally valuable. A man is a man and a woman is a woman. A life far from God is like watching the Super Bowl in black and white. 
There is a depth and a color to life that you're missing, and it's found in Christ. There's a better way. There is a judgment call in this life. There is a discerning. And we need people that be willing to graciously point out the speck in each other's eyes. But there's a judgment call in verse 6 too. Look at that again. Here's a helpful explanation I read this week from my friend Dan Doriani. He's my friend because I like his books. So this idea of, of pigs and dogs, here's, here's what uh, Dan has to say about it. Quote, after forbidding judgment in the previous paragraph, verse 6, Jesus now seems to require that we judge certain people to be pigs or dogs and not give them our pearls. The assessment is quite harsh. And it kind of talks about how it's kind of an ironic kind of language that Jesus is using. To paraphrase, it could go this way. If you view your criticisms as pearls of wisdom and you toss them at those who you consider to be swine and dogs, those swine will trample your wisdom and those dogs will perceive your attitude and turn and attack you. He talks how the language is kind of an overstatement calling someone a, a pig and a dog. And, and he says, if we also have an overstatement here, then Jesus does not actually want us to call anyone a pig. But he is teaching us that it may be necessary to assess our audience. There are times when the words of truth, such as the teaching Jesus has given, will not get a fair hearing. Then we must be silent. Proverbs says, do not speak to a fool, for he will scorn the wisdom of your words. Similarly, Jesus tells his disciples that some towns will neither receive them nor listen to their words. There is a discerning and a judging of awareness of who we are speaking to when we offer words of truth. And if you're more excited about this kind of assessment specks and pigs and dogs, if you're more excited about that assessment than you are about discerning and wrestling with your own blind spots, you are exactly who Jesus is speaking to in this passage. The call to judge is framed by humility, framed by those who would judge and assess in light of what has been commanded of us all in the Sermon on the Mount. Tension. It's a tension. We love and we speak. We evaluate self and we serve those that we care about. If we submit ourselves to Jesus' teaching, we have to ask ourselves how this kind of humble assessment is possible. How can I view myself as the greatest problem and then serve and disciple other people? What do I do when I'm prone to judge wrongly and condemn? How do I speak into the specks of others without coming off as a jerk or self-righteous as the Pharisees were? What, what do I do if I don't know what these verses are talking about? What do I do if I'm fine, but it's the other people who have the problem? Now, as we've said for three chapters now, if you do not understand the Beatitudes, the, the high call of Jesus, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount won't make any sense to you. 
We can't produce or manufacture a life or a pattern of right judging in our life. You can't. We can pursue and seek to do the right and moral thing, but we will continually encounter a broken world that deeply alarms us. We will continually run into the limitations of our own eyesight and our own assessments on the world because of our personal sin and our frailty. We will continue to see other people and their problems as bigger than what resides in here. So, we look back and we have to remind ourselves who is called to the tension of humble assessments. Who is the sermon on the mount written to? Who can live out the standard? Well, if you turn a page back and look again at Matthew chapter 5, we look at the Beatitudes. Starting in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the faithful follower who sees their sin and their needy position before they see others. Blessed are those who mourn, The faithful follower who weeps and laments over what they see in themselves before they mourn over the specks of others. Blessed are the meek. The faithful follower whose disposition is one of humility as they know their blind spots are just as prevalent as the blind spots of others. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The faithful follower who sees no righteousness in themselves So they cling to the righteousness of Jesus on their behalf. Blessed are the merciful. The faithful follower who extends mercy and kindness as they assess and discern imperfect people around them. Blessed are the pure in heart. The faithful follower who strives for their own purity before they demand it and shake their fist at others. Blessed are the peacemakers, the faithful follower who seeks peace and unity when they rightly judge and offer words of correction to those around them. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, the faithful follower that is persecuted when they are faithfully following God's ways and laws and they humbly assess. And if you find you are attacked because you're a jerk, you deserve it. These beatitudes are the fruit of the gospel of Christ shaped in you. When you believe the great news that Jesus lived, died, and rose again to bring you forgiveness and new life, you are changed from the inside out. His spirit produces this kind of kingdom living. His spirit produces this kind of humble judgment calls and assessments of the world. Our judgments truly become recalibrated when we become a woman, a man, or a child that has been changed in Christ. And if you're here as a Christian or considering Christianity, if you recognize that you have a life marked by judging wrongly, harshly, or condemningly, turn to Jesus. He'll change the way you interact with the world around you. Or perhaps you're here and you find yourself on the other extreme, on the other end. You're so afraid to make any kind of assessment or judgment call call in life that you shy away. 
You shy away from ever saying anything true. You shy away from ever bringing up a speck that you may see. There's good, for you. There's good news for you too. Because as we are a people continually shaped by the gospel of Jesus, as we behold the beauty of Jesus, the Apostle Paul says, we are changed from one degree of glory into the next. What Jesus calls us to, when he calls you to judge humbly and assess rightly, what he calls you to, he will shape in you. The Beatitudes shape our judgments. And good thing. Because this morning, this afternoon, tomorrow, tomorrow's Monday, by the way, tomorrow when you go back to the normal world and there's school and there's work and there's life and there's messiness, we're called to this tension of humble assessments. Judgment calls on life. And Jesus calls us to look inward first. So would you pray with me that this week we would be so affected by the Spirit of God that we would graciously see ourselves and the people around us rightly. That's a big prayer. So pray with me. Father, we ask you to do the supernatural. We ask you to supernaturally, by your Spirit, change our hearts. Shape us to be more like Jesus in our interactions. Shape us to obey this command on our life. To judge, to assess humbly. God, we recognize many specks and some specks that we look out in this world seem pretty large. We have many things we're concerned about. But help us to have just as much energy and just as much concern about the log and the two-by-four that is in our own eye. God, as we are shaped by the gospel, as we reproduce faithful followers of Christ, we will see hearts changed. It cannot be changed in any other way. You, the sovereign of this world, must change us. God, our call to humble assessments is a call to a relational community. That's not just a cute core value that we have at our church. It is the declaration of our lives and the call of the scriptures that we would live in community with one another, that we would love one another so well where we could be iron to iron. We could sharpen one another. We could speak freely in grace to one another to point out logs and specks. And when, God, we encounter the outside world and the specks that we see, they'll hear us. They'll hear us when they see our love for one another and our love for them. We cannot argue anyone into the kingdom of God. So, God, help us to be truly disciple makers. Do a great work in us and through us this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.